You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, sugar. I'm Erica Michelle. I host a voice diary called Brown Sugar Diaries on the Rock Candy Network, where I spill all the tea about my daily experiences, life lessons, my journey to healing and wholeness, my life as an entrepreneur, student doctor, CEO of a nonprofit, and I give my opinion on the current happenings of the world. You see why I have this voice diary? I got a lot of stuff to talk about. Tune into Brown Sugar Diaries wherever you listen to podcasts, and let's sip on this tea. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right, so we are coming to the end of a podcast bender in a single day. I am joined once again by known alcoholic Matt Langston. Uh, <laughs> you and, can't escape that title. Um, I know. <laughs> and <laughs> Madam Librarian herself. Rebecca Shaw. Hello. Hi. So we are here to talk about a movie that we're kind of a bit late to the game on. It came out, I think, at the end of the summer. This will be coming out sometime in November. Hopefully the election results don't traumatize everyone too much. If so, hello. We're coming to you from the sunny past when there was just <laughs> COVID to worry about. Only. <laughs> only right, so a pandemic. Only a pandemic. Or maybe the election results will be great. We just don't know. All right. Uh, so we're discussing the documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. Oh, and this is a kind of new format for Sacred Tension. Uh, we are doing a movie club episode. <laughs> <laughs> you just decided that just I now. I just decided that just <laughs> this second. I'm okay with this. <laughs> And uh, so I am trying out new formats for the show, if this is one you like, where I get together with some co-hosts and discuss a book or a film, then please let me know. I would love to hear your input, and if you like it, then we will keep going. But before we move on to discussing the show, the, the social, the social <laughs> dilemma. <laughs> two beers, two beers, Steve. I, I, I know. Is it two? Uh, I'm on three. It's on. I'm just making jokes. I mean, <laughs> it's probably five or six. At this you point. would look at you would look at my at my body type and assume that I have better tolerance of alcohol than I do. Um. Okay, so before we get on to that. Uh, I need to thank my latest patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. They make sure that this content has a long life, that I can keep creating stuff, that I can explore new ventures, new creative things. If you enjoy all the stuff that I have been doing with Rock Candy and all my other side projects, not that Rock Candy is a side project. Uh, apologies to everyone in the room right now. <laughs> um, Rock candy is life. Gotcha, Rock candy David. is life. So, what are you even doing here? All of, <laughs> all of that is helped by my patrons. And to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar to $10 a month. You get access to all of my extra content. And this week, I have to thank Bethany, Brock, Melissa, Nate, Chrissy, and Helena. Thank you so much. I really cannot do this without you. Or Helena, however it's pronounced. Or Helena. <laughs> anyway, okay. But maybe you are not in a position where you can financially give right now. And I completely understand the economy is a dumpster fire. And I really need you to take care of yourself and your family first. Um, but there are other ways to support the show. And one of the best ways to do that is to just subscribe wherever you are listening on whatever podcast app subscribe that tells our digital overlords to pay attention and to share this show with others. But another really good way is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So this week's five-star review comes from SlinkySun983, who says, genuine and earnest. They say Stephen is a wonderful host with genuine interests in what he is talking about and has a knack for finding the appropriate guest for the topic. 
which is very sweet. I'm glad that they enjoyed this show. And if you have something nice to say or something not nice to say, then do consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and I will read it on the show. Oh, and also this show is sponsored by the Satanic TV. It is a streaming platform for all things Satan. If you're interested in uh, new religious movements, in the occult, in ritual, they have all kinds of amazing stuff, live streams, documentaries, feature-length films, and lots of rituals as well. There's also some kinky stuff on there if you're into it. And so you can get one month free by using my code at checkout, which is sacred tension, all caps, no space. All right. Well, with, <laughs> with all of that, that pause was me hearing the thumping of Matt's dog. I'm sorry, my dog is red rocketing upstairs, <laughs> and there's just no way around it right now. <clears throat> so, all right, it is what it is. A moment of silence. So we are, <laughs> so we are a bit loopier than usual because we have been recording literally all fucking day, and so uh, this might just fly off the rails. This might turn into. Uh, a complete clusterfuck, and but that's okay. Might be the best podcast we've ever recorded. It might be. Said every drunk podcast. It might ever. end in with with. Uh, <laughs> it might end with Rebecca just stabbing all of us to death, and it turns into which a, would be fitting for the Halloween season, which, which would this be probably fitting. comes out later. This will that. come out it, later. This does, yeah. yes, yeah. We're post Halloween at this point. Okay. Yep. And maybe Trump and Biden will actually make out with each other <laughs> on election day, and it will actually turn out to be a wonderful reconciliation. Oh, so sweet. It will be a wonderful reconciliation of opposing parties, and will they will usher us into this new paradise of you know people actually getting. <laughs> along if that happens i think i will have died like i i will have thought that i have died if i see that happening it does make me wonder what would trump look like if someone were to give him a hug that's a great he question probably explode. i kind of wonder he that probably sometimes like, i feel like combust. he would malfunction like what would happen if he experienced just genuine affection and empathy from another person. But no I one wants to would... hug him because he has COVID. Well, that's like, true. But, and Public he's also service a gross person. Don't hug him. You'll die. <laughs> right. he's, a, he's a plague rat. <laughs> okay, so we are discussing the film The Social Dilemma. It is on Netflix. It came out at the end of the summer, I believe. We're discussing this in October. If the zombies have come in the meantime, that's why we're not talking about it. So Amen. bear the date in mind. This, this will be coming out later in the year. We're also a bit late to this subject, but it's very, very important because the what the social dilemma is trying to address is existentially terrifying and um, will probably have a lot of influence on the election, whatever the, the, the result is, social media and these data mining platforms and manipulation platforms will will still be uh, omnipotent after the election when this episode comes out. So it's really important that we still discuss this. So let's start with Matt. Matt, what was... Oh, okay, actually, let's not. So <laughs> what, what did I do to make you change course you looked so at quickly? Me. No, I'm kidding. So... <laughs> Okay, so the basic premise of The Social Dilemma is these, all of these tech bros who invented this, this Frankenstein monster called social media basically sit in front of the camera and, and talk about all of their mistakes and horror. And experiences developing it. And, and in a lot of instances, what the idea that they were trying to achieve with their creation was. And then what it actually turned yeah. out and what to it actually be, turned into. Which is... A fucking nightmare. Yeah. So, <laughs> Matt, we talked really, really briefly about this in a meeting the other day. You did not seem to enjoy the film all that much. Well, so I thought that there was an immense amount of really quality information in there. I mean, they're they're talking to these specific people who played a massive role in our user experience on social media right now. I think one of the guys was uh, president of Pinterest at, at some point. For everybody who's recently seen the film, I might be misremembering this entirely, but the I, I do remember um, Jaron Lanier was a prominent figure also in this, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, he gives incredible critical commentary on the state of social media and how it affects us as individuals and people and as a society and a species. And I absolutely loved the information and the retrospectives from these talking heads moments within this documentary that are very enlightening 
and also sort of come with a, a little bit of more authoritativeness from people that were involved in creating these algorithms or these functions within social media as opposed to just people rambling on about, you know, if they if they love social media or they're disgruntled by it or just talking to people who society would consider to be influencers. This feels like a way, way deeper dive into the subject of how social media is affecting us as a species. And I really, really appreciated that. On the other hand, uh-huh. throughout the movie, <laughs> there's also a running narrative. There actually almost feel like two separate running narratives in the movie where it's almost like they tried to intersect a, a movie about a family experiencing social media and how like the the prototypical American family interacts with social media and how damaging it is to their family unit, to their relationships with each other and with the world around them and with themselves, with how self-conscious they are, with these ideas that they get their self-worth from. And I thought it was kind of cool, but then on top of that, there's also this cutaway series of shots where the AI or the algorithm (laughs) that is sort of putting together this entire, that is supposed to be the culmination of all social media and controlling the family's lives is played by this one actor from Mad Men, and I don't remember his name. So (laughs) forgive me because I'm not- He was from Mad Men. I couldn't place him at the time. So he he's playing three separate roles of himself as a machine, constantly manipulating and trying to figure out ways to get people in right. the family well, back onto social media. If this feels like a a mind fucker to you, like me explaining it, <laughs> you should try watching okay. the movie. But okay, so I I actually want to jump in on that because I watched this movie with my mom, and uh, as Stephen was introducing me. My my Discord handle, at least, is Madam Librarian, and I am a librarian. Recently finished my grad program, and a lot of what we talked about, we covered a lot, was data privacy. Right. And you know, so these are conversations that naturally came up. Right. With within my cohort, my you know classmates, um, within our field, even of you know, social media. And how it impacts us. Mm-hmm. And so, like, a lot of the information that was presented in this movie was not new to me. Yeah. I was primarily interested in how they were presenting it. Right. And I watched this movie with my mom, for whom this was entirely new. Mm. And um, we we paused halfway through to, like, you know, get more snacks. and New and- in that, like, social media is a reality for your mom, but maybe she hasn't, like, taken the time to right. think critically through how it's affecting her or what it is or, right. or how it's being run the way it is. Exactly. Like, she and, she and my dad both have um, a Facebook. That is the extent of their social media knowledge and use. Um, my dad never gets on Facebook. I don't think he even uploaded a user photo. I, like... I don't think he Choice. has a photo. Quintessential on it. boomer. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, and, like I don't think he's ever posted. Um, and you know, my mom gets on there to keep up with her friends, her cousins, extended family, to see the cute cat videos, right, etc. Right. But she never posts that much. And um, so we we paused halfway through, and she made a comment about the the AI. Right. Narrative, because as you mentioned, there's these three different. It feels like three different things smushed into a movie. Um, so you you have like the the docudrama through the family. Yes, yes. You have the narrative of the the actual tech inventors, um, and then you have this narrative of the, of the AI, which came across to me as like, oh, this was the design thinking. This wasn't necessarily. This was partly the AI. Right. But it was the design thinking. Like there's this one point where the intent written into the AI. Right, the intent yeah. written into the AI where the, where the guy is um in the docudrama, the family, the teen is like texting this girl that he likes. Mm-hmm. And you hear one of the AI men go, "Let's add ellipses so that he knows she's typing back." Right. So it's partly the design thinking and what fascinated me about this 
they did touch on data mining, as Dave, uh, as Stephen mentioned here. As Dave, <laughs> <laughs> who the fuck is Dave? She's on podcast three and she's getting named. <laughs> she's hallucinating. <laughs> That's Tony over here in the corner. <laughs> You're Dave now. Excellent. <laughs> Internet Dave. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you were okay, saying. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> anyway, um, as I was saying, data mining does come into the narrative in the interviews that they're doing. But the drama was entirely focused on how addictive technology is. Right, right. Mm. And that was what struck me was they didn't really go into the privacy aspect. They Mm -hmm. didn't really go into the data mining and how your data is being utilized. They entirely focused on it's addictive and they then focused that narrative even more onto kids. Yeah. Onto teens. Mm Mm-hmm. And completely ignored how it's affecting other populations. Sure. Well, I think deci- I think making a creative call on deciding that you're going to um, to talk about how this affects the development of impressionable humans right. coming of age in in an age of technology. I think that all three of us here would want a movie that might be too much information at one time because I'm totally that person. So I can, I I feel like I have a a lot of empathy for uh, choosing a creative direction that you feel like this is what we need to go with. And we need to like hone in on this. I definitely agree. Like they, they did a good job of honing their focus. They, they picked a narrative and they stuck with it and they didn't really rabbit trail. Yeah. Which was good. There was, um, so I think later in the movie they did talk about micro targeting, yes, and how data is used to basically create a political landscape that we have simply never ever seen before in right. the history of humanity, yeah. Yeah. and Where, how divisive it makes us, and how the and how divisive it it makes us, and so you know using targeted propaganda to basically whip up homicidal rage against minorities in mm-hmm. certain countries and um and how uncontrolled that yes. is and yeah and really how this how social media is is basically a a gift to any authoritarian who wants to divide and conquer a society right and yeah. how it is so easy and i was recent i don't think this this was in the documentary i've been reading and listening and watching to a lot of stuff about this, so I can't really remember what was actually in the documentary and what wasn't. But, <laughs> Sorry, um, we'll fact check you. But I think the one of the people on the podcast or on the movie named Tristan Harris, he has a podcast and he was talking about how for just $10,000 for the cost of a used car, right. some someone can basically micro-target vulnerable people yes. and, and manipulate them ideologically yeah. to extreme ideas and how incredibly easy it is and well, how extremist is. groups are doing this mm-hmm. to, to radicalize people on the internet. And you see that with um, one of the teens. In, yeah. in the documentary, in, in the, the drama portion of it. Yeah. And, and you have the, they had very specific roles for the family members. And I thought it was really, again, I thought it was interesting that they didn't delve into the parents' technology use at all. Yeah. They really focused it on the kids. The interesting thing about that being that it is mostly older people who mm-hmm. are getting into QAnon. So... It is older people. You listened to no, the rabbit hole. I get it. I yeah. You listened get it. to the rabbit hole, which is another great podcast from the New York Times. Which I would encourage anybody who watched the Social Dilemma, yes. to absolutely check out the rabbit hole by the New York Times. This amazing podcast that Stephen turned me on to because he's probably one of the best podcast curators of our generation, <laughs> and <laughs> turned me on to this. And I, there are so so many things that if you are if you're wanting to gain an understanding, if you are the kind of person that watches movies and constantly walks away from them going why 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 I need more. Where's the data? What's actually happening right. here? What are they trying to express? Um, yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, like, so that point of not focusing on what the adults are doing online is actually a really important point because everyone is susceptible to radicalization. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that might be 
I don't know. There's a lot of things that we could wish that this film did that they didn't do, but the movie had to end somewhere. But um, it, ha- it had to have a scope. It had and, to have a scope. And they picked their scope and they stuck to it. And that was the addictiveness of technology. And they, there was Tristan who talked about how email, and that's not something that we usually think of as social media, but how email was his weakness. Yeah, and email's just my weakness. Clearing his inbox. I gave uh, I gave Matt my phone at the beginning of this show, <laughs> so that I literally so that I would not check email while True recording. <laughs> yeah, I think for me it's um, Instagram, and and the fact that they've now, you you know when it when you scroll all the way through your feed, you have that little note that tells you, oh, you're caught up. Right. And that just that like clearing of the charts i like that closure is addictive closure is addictive and now with the instagram stories and having those shiny little circles to say oh i've i've checked all these boxes right right and for me that's that's where i get caught well one of the overarching themes that i thought was really great about this movie is that it makes very clear from the developers to the family narrative that the whole point of of what drives these developers is this capitalist notion of mm-hmm. of attention and of finance. And so you, the whole the whole end game seems to be to keep you as engaged, spending as much time as possible, yes, on these individual platforms because they're ultimately able to sell your attention span to marketers. And those marketers could be anybody. It could be marketing any anything as benign as sunglasses to political ideologies. Yeah. And all of this is happening on this one giant thing that we're all connected to day in and day out that we depend on for so much of our information. And it's in an unprecedented way where in the past there's so many different parts of our life that we're able to be compartmentalized. Right. Conversations on the phone only being marketed to in stores. Like, yeah. Well, and and to some degree, social media has further compartmentalized us. Mm. And I mean, not in the way that you're talking about. Sure. But in the sense that and, and Stephen, you've brought this up in conversations before that it's an echo chamber. Yeah, and that it, it is it's intense, curated to your views, right? Like it's yeah. intensely personalized. And there's that they they visualize this in the documentary mm-hmm. where if you type in "global warming is," depending on your location or even like who you yes. are or who you are, it will yes. fill in different answers. Mm. Um, and and so there is this: we go to Google as like this impartial well of information, this neutral yeah. well of information. Whereas it's not neutral at it's all. It's not neutral at all. And so you will type climate change is and it will fill in a hoax, is a threat, yeah. is real, is fake, is is whatever. It, it yeah. shows you what it thinks you want to know. And something at the end of the movie where they're you know, they're closing off with all these, you know, interviewers and one of them talked about using quant as their their search engine. And I personally use DuckDuckGo as my default search engine instead of Google. And my mom looked at me and she said, you mean I don't have to use Google? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that brings up an interesting point that I think something that I've been thinking about quite a lot is how these platforms, Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, it's almost like they are masquerading. They are this this monster that is masquerading as something that we have always been accustomed to, which is the public square or the right. library. Right. Right. The town hall. The town hall. They so public discourse now. Or the community happens. center. Yeah, a community center. All of these things that were previously far more neutral. That and we could have a certain measure of confidence that that they were neutral. You know, the public square being a place where ideas could actually be discussed impartially. Right. So, but now yeah. there's this there's this uh, these private companies that have they are the richest companies in human history have infiltrated, and we are now doing all of that in a private sphere, and. 
that just strikes me as like an unprecedented situation. And and so, you know, there's the old liberal ideal of the marketplace of ideas mm-hmm. being, you know, this, this neutral space. Was it ever really neutral? Well, maybe not, but it was, it was the most neutral we could get. It was get. an attempt at neutrality. It was an attempt at neutrality, but we don't have that anymore. Well, and, and the important thing to, to pull in, and I'm going to plug a book here. The, book is how to do nothing resisting the attention economy and i'm gonna very quickly look up the author because i did not (laughs) okay did not prepare to to do this but the entire time i was watching the movie i kept thinking of this book um, which i read it's by jenny odell um, and i highly recommend reading it and the entire time i was watching this movie i kept thinking about it because I, the phrase the attention economy was new to me and it's something they brought up in the movie. And she talks about social media and how it has perpetrated this collapse of context. Mm. And that has been a key point as far as, um, you know, creating an echo chamber, creating a right. personalized sphere. And talk about she, what she means by by collapse so of context. collapse of context is basically like if you walk into the town hall or the library and you get into a conversation with someone who has a different viewpoint than you do you have the context of being physically in the same space of physically being in the same community of having you know, the, these points of contact these these points of connection even if your ideologies are different and you can bridge the gap between mm. your two worlds because you have other connecting factors and because you know you both know the community you can say oh i know where you're coming from yeah similarly steven you had read 10 arguments for deleting your social media i was just thinking about that yes one of jaron lanier's arguments in that um, and he was also in this movie and Jaron Lanier is one of my favorite people on the planet. He's just incredibly brilliant and one of the architects of kind of our modern technological age. And one of his arguments is social media makes you meaningless to others, meaning social media when when you post something the entire context that you existed in when you posted that is ripped away that means that your mood your intent your your headspace whether you were hungry or not whether you were in a bad mood or not your your relationships just every single thing about you is stripped away when you post and people don't see that and that makes you void almost it it means that everything you say is meaningless because in because words are imbued with meaning through intent, and it's impossible to contextualize. And it's context. impossible, and in context, and it is right. impossible to really gain that on social media. Right. And that of all the points that he made in ten arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now, I think that is the one that sits with me the most. And that mm. that's the one that I think ties into her argument about collapse of context, where um, I think you put it to me. And maybe this was drawn from his book, which is on my my list of things to read. Yes, everyone read it. But <laughs> it's great. It, it was basically like, you know, if you walk into a room and you see someone watching CNN or Fox News, you can go, oh, I know where they're getting their ideas. Even if you don't agree with the ideas right. that are being presented, you, you have a point of context for saying, exactly. I know where they're getting that, but... My news feed on Facebook or Instagram looks very different. It's tailored to you. It's tailored to me. So it's, we, it looks different see. from Stevens and from Matt's. Mm-hmm. And so they have no context for where I'm getting my information or what I'm seeing. I have no context for their social media input. And it's also something that we don't have control over. And case of point, just a few days ago, this this will probably maybe even be months since this has happened by the time this episode airs. But a few days ago, I was on facebook and i realized that they had changed their algorithm that they had done an update on whatever it was i can't remember if i got a notification about it or 
or what it was, but all of a sudden, my entire news feed that I've had for the past four years looked completely different. Uh, all of the information that I got, there were there were uh, groups that I had followed on Facebook thinking that maybe, you know, every now and then they would send me an update that somebody had done something on there. All of a sudden, my my feed was absolutely flooded with these group posts of these groups that I had forgotten that I even cared about. <laughs> it all of a sudden was just like completely irrelevant to how I wanted my yeah, life. To, no it was con- not anything no I wanted to look over. at or see. And I'm ultimately powerless. It doesn't matter like like if I tried to to cure like the algorithm is training us to understand the algorithm, yeah. if that makes sense, and oh, to live does. our lives in such a way as to only consume the things that our brain wants to consume. And a lot of times it's the lower brain functionality of this sort of like scrolling, just go, just constantly dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit yeah. that we're subject to on all of these different platforms. And so, yeah, it's just... It almost feels like this unwinnable battle to even be on it and regain control. And it feels to me almost like the the situation where it's like, you know, oh, don't you want to be happy? Don't you want something to make you happy? Does this not make you happy? Let me try and make you happy. <laughs> it, it's like yeah. this horror thing yeah. where... Um, which interestingly enough is in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It is. Which is that that, it is. that people's hell is essentially getting everything that they want. Right. And, and never having to critically engage right. with ideas or things that make them uncomfortable. This is one reason why I'm actually really nervous about um, about the stay-at-home orders that we've had this year. Not mm. they were necessary. Yeah. yeah. But I think the reality is that the workplace was one of the few places in life where you actually had to deal with people who believed different sure. things. Yeah. Right. Especially so, if you're in customer service. Especially if you're in customer service. So like my day job is dealing with people from all over the political spectrum, both coworkers and customers. Right. But and, and so I feel like that humanizes them for me. But if I were to just stay at home and be on social media, those exact same people who I'm talking with and working with would suddenly become monsters. <laughs> they would suddenly become right. villains. Right. Hasn't everybody it had, them. Hasn't everybody had that experience where you, you meet somebody new at, at a party or a gathering or a wedding or something, and you really hit it off with them, and they seem like really great, genuine people. You have some fun experiences together. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few weeks later, you guys might connect on Facebook and you and discover you're scro- that you're, you're scrolling through enemies. their Facebook feed and you think, who the fuck are these exactly. <laughs> megalomaniacs? <laughs> exactly. I, right. And how was I able to have so much fun with these people in that context? But that's and- just it. It's the context that builds community yes. and relationships. And it's complicated. It's not black and white. And the algorithm wants it to be. So there's... There's a quote from Jaron Lanier, and I think he did say this in the documentary, and he said this elsewhere, that the way social media is set up right now is that you, two people can only interact with one another by way of a creepy, invisible third entity manipulating <laughs> right. that engagement, right? Yeah. Manipulating that, that interaction mm-hmm. and trying to get something out of it. Yeah. Right. And if you think if you really like if you really think about that and consider the big scale ramifications of every interaction happening between people not every interaction but a lot of the interactions if if you think about the consequences of that on a big scale of every single interaction happening between people between two people or a group of people they're always being this shadowy third entity manipulating them for the sake of financial gain. Yeah. It's terrifying. Well, it is. And one of the points made in the movie was that, you know, there, there are only a few industries that call basically their clients, their, their users. clients users and yeah, drug dealers and tech, 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 tech bros. Yeah. <laughs> tech bros. <laughs> and th- this idea of being manipulated and the idea that we are the product mm. that this isn't free it comes at the cost of 
we are the ones being sold. Exactly. It's not free. So, yeah, which is one reason why I always tr- I always pay for things on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> like so so there are free services like Google Docs. It's super convenient. But the the problem is if you aren't paying for it, then that means that you aren't the customer. Mm-hmm. Something else is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why I used, you know, weird little third party apps for <laughs> for all my writing. Because and it sound it sounds weird and it sounds paranoid, but if if we don't pay for these services, incidentally paying for something tends to make it much better. But if we aren't paying There's for no that free lunch. Thing, there, yeah. Exactly. Somebody's paying for if it. If we aren't paying for it, then then we are what's being sold. I, I right? do have a caveat to add to that because I was recently having a conversation with another friend who's currently in library school and her textbook was talking about how basically if information isn't free, it's worthless and pointed mm. out Wikipedia as a as an example and I that's a that's a point of contention for me because <laughs> how so <laughs> how so Rebecca <laughs> because I think Wikipedia is a fabulous uh resource and a great jumping off point for research and here I'm going full nerd librarian good go for it do it but open educational resources are a thing and they are wonderful so talk to your librarian today (laughs) (laughs) okay so basically there's a there's a good way and a bad way to provide free resources and i think can be free free good resources there can be and right now we don't have it and i think with social media we don't have it. with social media we don't have it and i think the goal of google was to provide all the world's information for free but Mm. they did it in a way that just created a a hellscape that I think dehumanizes people in a capitalist way. Ab- well, yeah. yeah, absolutely, and that's the key that it is a capitalist motive. So personal. So Matt, we've talked about this a lot. This unicorns. Yes, unicorns. <laughs> we talk about unicorns a lot. We talk about fucking them. <laughs> we talk about our never-ending fantasy of being. Fucked by the horn of a unicorn. Right. That is that. That's a pretty pricey Patreon uh, tier, right? That's there. a. Before you get that's my. That point. That's my fans only. No, actually, right. that's that's Matt's fans only. Um. So, oh Jesus Christ, what was I saying? Yeah. I don't know. Unicorn. Oh, personal use. So we yeah. we've right. talked about this a lot. How our own personal relationship with social media is so incredibly fraught. Yeah. And and how hard it is. And I've been writing a lot about this over the past year, just about how I am personally navigating social media. I co-authored an article with Aria DeSatanis about, you know, embodying the seven tenets of the satanic temple of of compassion and empathy and and reason in yeah. on social media and how we do that. Yeah. And and so I've been writing quite a bit about what are my own personal ethics on social media? How, what are the principles that are guiding me? And I think one of the foundational things that I've walked away with is to get as many people off these platforms as possible. (laughs) And if I'm going to be on them to really use them to channel users to other safer platforms and, and to really direct people to artists platforms themselves. So direct people to my website, direct people to my discord, which is also probably super creepy, but it's better than Twitter. And, and so (laughs) I feel like right now it provides context, it provides context and it's, and it's private and it feels more secure. I don't know if it actually is, but Basically, right now, I feel like I'm existing on social media to try to funnel people away from it, to to try to build build an audience and, and take them away, you know, like put them on an arc and take them away from, right. from right. social media. But at the same time, I've had conversations with friends where like, you know, we're all disgruntled with Facebook, with social media and just... It's been so frustrating to exist there. Mm, yeah. But at the same time, it's a privilege to be able to walk away from that. It is. Because there are so many jobs that require you to engage with social media. Well, I think that's what Stephen was kind of talking about yeah. as well, is that, you know, as creators, 
social media is an integral part of our platform. And I fucking hate it. It yeah, is. And it makes me honestly <clears throat> feel imprisoned. I hate it too. I feel imprisoned by it. I feel like it's one of the, I don't, I don't even want to call it a necessary evil. Because at any given point, I have the freedom to simply delete all of my social media accounts. But I'm so connected to a fan base, to a community, yeah, to family. I mean, I feel like that's the insidious nature of this thing is that it's not a phone book. No. It's not something that you, you know, just can can replace replace so easily, easily. painlessly. It is something that is absolutely inter- it's it's your it's putting ads alongside your family. It's it's it literally is. like taking your like what used to be I remember being a kid and like sitting around the fireplace and like looking through old photo albums with my grandparents and my parents and them telling us stories. Yeah. And you get your own sort of like family lore, your sense of belonging, your place in the universe. You know, as a, as a young child, you see that things came before you and things will come after you. And now I feel like my family photo album is along, is interspersed with ads for fucking Wish. Wish. Right? <laughs> yeah. Or for yeah, some yeah. mini skirt. Like why Facebook thinks I need why? mini skirts? I don't know. Like, Matt, then... maybe we need to talk about this. Why <laughs> does Facebook think you need mini skirts? I don't know. That's the thing. It's like maybe I, it knows it's all the that you have a kink. I have no idea. It. Well, maybe it does. Maybe it's like it's already pre I'm preconditioned to the kink. Um <laughs> But no, you're right. It's it's basically the number of Older people in my family who are like, oh, I'm on Facebook so I can keep up with X, Y, and Z, with the younger right, generation, with right. family. And and this is where older people are at a disadvantage. This is. And it's something that I, I feel is overlooked in the movie is the technology literacy aspect where, yes, younger people are not exempt from being drawn into these radical ideologies that are perpetrated on social media, but they do have an advantage of technology literacy yeah, that older people sure. do not. That also might mean that that young people are savvier to propaganda than old people are. Yeah. Honestly, that might that and might again, be another element of it. It depends on the situation. Yeah. Yeah, I I sometimes wonder if we if we're in a really uh particularly advantageous position to have grown up in a time pre-internet and now completely within the internet because we have we're in this weird sort of middle phase where our parents grew up with it but they can't contextualize it the way that we can because they haven't been using it mm-hmm. as long and then we also have people who are younger than us and not that much younger than technology we are technology natives where they are they were completely born into it they were it. raised with yeah. it and so like what ads feel like to us don't feel like ads to either of these generations it's just, before right. it's, after like, us. it's just like the landscape it's just trees yes yeah. and that that's what is scary to me is when just your landscape is commercialization being, is being monetized yeah. when your when your landscape itself or your mental landscape is being and and all of your interactions with your friends and family are being commodified. Yeah. That spooks me a lot. It does. And you know, like, I haven't actually posted on my Facebook in I don't know how long, but I keep Messenger. I keep my account, partly so I can update Rock Candy, but also... <laughs> blame it all on Rock Candy. I'm going to blame it on Rock Candy. This is the thin thread that Rock Candy social media hangs by. It's Rebecca and her Messenger app. <laughs> But I keep messengers so I can keep up with like three people. Yeah, exactly. But it's important to me that I keep up with those three people. Of course, of course. So I have, especially after reading Jaron Lanier's book, and there are very few books for me for which there is a before and after, Mm -hmm. you know, where the book just totally radicalized and changed the way I see the world. Yeah. Lanier's book is one of those books. And after reading that book, I felt, I, I feel this gigantic complicity in even using social media as a tool to reach of my course, audience. I feel course. this ethical dilemma in doing that. Or a social dilemma. <laughs> or a social dilemma. <laughs> oh, shit. Is that what we were talking about? <laughs> this whole time? <laughs> you mean it was the title of the, so of the movie? So one of the things that sparked, to, to kind of 
pivot some, there's a there's another aspect to this, which is focus and our capacity to focus and how, you know, there are all these articles. There's been this like genre of op ed for the past five years in all the major newspapers and magazines from basically like these prestigious authors writing these op-eds saying, I can't read anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't read long books anymore because I've become accustomed to Twitter. Right. Wasn't there a book called um, The Shallows? Yes. So The Shallows by by Nicholas Carr. And that came out, I think that that was like 2011. I mean, it was a bit earlier and Nicholas Carr was like seeing the psychological consequences a pretty accurate premonition yeah it was very yeah. accurate and one of the things that he talks about is how a sense of self and a sense of identity is created through long-term memory mm-hmm. and what that but long-term memory requires sustained focus mm-hmm. yeah so we create a sense of self and we and long-term memory is like a cathedral it's huge and it can store an enormous amount of data. It can yeah. store books and memories and and relationships and just all the things that make us us, all the things that make us who we are, that huge tapestry, mm. that yeah. huge store of experience and and memory and knowledge and literature and culture. All of that is stored in long-term memory. But the catch is that it only passes from short-term memory, thoughts, feelings, knowledge, Mm -hmm. books, relationships, only pass from short-term memory to long-term memory by way of focus. Yes. And that takes time. And it takes time, and it takes sustained focus. So it takes sitting down and reading a book for hours. It takes the time to really focus on a relationship. And that process is being robbed. By the commodification of attention. By the commodification Mm -hmm. of attention. And so what this means is that people are becoming husks. Yes. And people, that, that inner cathedral is empty. So I actually find this really fitting because I feel like what you're describing right now is an identity crisis. Yes, it, <laughs> it that, is. That people experience and that I absolutely, if I spend too much time on these platforms, I I have these these times where you and I have talked about this many, many times where we're like, I just need to detox. Yes. I just need to get off of this thing and like- And get, rediscover who you are. Figure yeah. out who I am again. And in the same way, I almost feel like this movie sort of mirrors that <laughs> in that as I'm watching it, it feels like the movie's having an identity crisis <laughs> in that it's like it's this amazing documentary where you're getting all of this like really great dense amounts of knowledge from these people who are on the ground level of creating this thing and then it's being interspersed with like sometimes like overly campy or simplistic yes. narrative of the family and the AI which, as we're talking about it now, I've, I feel like there's new ways in which I'm appreciating it, and I love it. There's just a part of me that feels like <clears throat> I kind of wish that it had picked a lane to go into because I, I could have <laughs> sat, I could have sat and listened to three hours of the Talking Heads. I, I have literally listened to multiple hours of Jared Lanier. Yes, I can, but I think I think just. I don't know. I guess my intuition with the dramatizations and then the weird inside the AI scenes right. was them trying to convey in a dramatic way to the broad public technical details that would be very, very hard yes. to convey otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I actually really appreciate, as weird as it was, I really appreciated the three different aspects because I feel like mm. it allowed for the movie of, to of go. Of the AI. Of the a- well, of the AI and of the movie. Of having the talking heads, of having the dramatization, and of having the AI. Yeah. Because it came at the issue from three different aspects. Right, right. And the and I don't part of me wonders if you know I think part of the reason this movie is getting such a broad appeal right now is because it did that. Because Jaron Lanier and Tristan Harris appeals to nerds like us. Right. Right. Because I I could, like you said, I could have listened to them talk all day. Right. But But if my parents were watching the talking head stuff, it's going over their heads. It doesn't matter how they try to simplify it. And like, you know, watching it with my mom was a different experience than I would have had watching it on my own. Yeah. Because like I said, this was all new to her. And it's something that was interesting that she, she pointed out at the end of the movie was, 
she said, you know, I would get these emails that so-and-so had posted a photo on Facebook or had posted an update and I would feel guilty for not responding (sighs) or not looking at it. Your mother is such a saint. Oh, she is. She really is. Well, it hacks, it hacks, (laughs) it hacks your emotions. We're evolved to be intensely social creatures. And one of the things, one of my favorite books is Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. It's like a classic cyberpunk novel that came out in the 90s, but the Snow Crash virus is a virus that hacks not just the hacker's computer, but also their brain. Mm. And so it it hacks, it crashes not just their computer, but it also crashes the human being. And I feel like social media is that. It is Snow mm. Crash, where not only does it not, it's like two levels. It it hacks the human species and it hacks our deepest desires for connection. Right. Which, which these these things have made me think um, about the world that we're living in in this like very parallel way, in which we're discovering now, or at least our our generation seems very woke, for lack of a better term, to the ways in which our society, our planet. Uh, is destroying itself. Global warming, all these natural disasters, fluxes in the carbon cycle, like all of these damaging things that are happening where we're watching our planet waste away and toxify itself. And then our whole ha- our whole other life, our whole online life, we're also watching it happen there as well. Hmm. And it right. just feels like this two-sided coin of existential dread. Well, it does. Of like, oh my God, all of this, like, do we stand a chance against do any we of as it? humanity? Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite YouTubers, and I'm not remembering her name right now. Uh, I'll post a link to this in the show notes, but she has a video called OK Doomer, where she talks about the rise <laughs> of the Doomer meme. And it's like this meme of this hopeless young man who is who's just com- lost complete hope in life who's heartbroken who's nihilistic and so on and she was commenting on the rise of this meme in leftist activist spaces mm. and how mm. this meme has kind of broken out of right wing slash 4chan troll culture yeah and into other spaces like leftist activist space yeah and and how it it's an expression of just this deep, deep despair. And she has this insight, which I thought was so brilliant. And it helped me understand a lot of my emotions whenever I get on social media. When everything is combined, when cute pack when cute cat pictures are right next yes. to horrific crimes against humanity Mm -hmm. when you're hanging out with friends and relaxing but then you're also by default doing activism and ingesting horrific information when it's all in one stream and you're also guilted if you're not posting anything that's activist exactly oriented if you're just posting cat pictures or pictures of your family or the food that you made. Yeah, and there's this nonstop pressure. Right. And how that creates this mass despair because you you need rest. You do. And no matter how bad times are, you still need rest. But where do we go for rest? We tend to go to social media. Because we want to be <laughs> with people. Because we want to connect. Exactly. And especially right now when people have been so physically disconnected because of the pandemic... We've turned to social media. Yep. Yeah. It, it, there was a, a term again. You know, I, I'm on social media, but there's a lot of things that are new to me. So this is a term that was new to me: doom scrolling. Yes. I'm a. <laughs> I'm a notorious. When, when, okay, so when I when the pandemic first hit, I was doom scrolling oh, for big hours. Time. Yes. Big time. Big time. Endlessly, yeah. and I couldn't stop. And, and I was I, watching Tiger King, and that was not a good thing. Oh, Tiger King was exactly <laughs> what I needed, though. <laughs> Tiger King was the smut I needed to survive the beginning of the pandemic. But no, actually, it, it took kind of an intervention from my friend Greg Stevens, where he called me and was like, "Here's what you're going to do." At 9 p.m. or 10 p.m., you're going to put your phone down and you're going to read a book. 
Mm. You're going to do this Mm. every night. And (laughs) just because my life was so brutal because I was an essential worker and it was, it was those first two weeks were maybe like the hardest two weeks of my entire professional career. And so where, where, where the fuck was I going with this? I no don't even idea. remember. He, that Greg oh, gave you oh, a really great piece yes. of advice. Okay, so, so along those lines, let's actually end this on a, on a positive note. Absolutely. So, yeah. So things that, so at the end of the movie, it details some things that people can do to limit the influence of social media. But what are we in this room personally doing to limiting the psychosis of social media in our lives? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's a great question. I, f- I actually feel like, Stephen, I, th- I really have been, uh, even over the last 18 months, been really impressed at your, your ability to compartmentalize the things that you're doing with social media. I don't feel like these conversations that you have with Greg Stevens. Stevens, mm-hmm. <laughs> go um, um, unrequited. Like I, because I've seen you. I feel like you and I text back and forth a lot, and I I know that there are times where it's like you'll text me and be like, I have to get, I have to set a boundary, I have to do oh, this yeah. or that. It's a nonstop, and I always thing. I always love getting those kinds of text messages from you because it's always an opportunity for me to self reflect, and when I find myself in a in a in a state or in a, a a state of being where I feel very manic, where I don't feel very much in control of my emotions, where everything feels very kind of doom and gloom and I'm not really sure where it's coming from or why it's happening, you can almost always trace it to a lack of focus. Yeah. To and the, and a lot of times the lack of focus just being that my life is on screens. That even if I'm not on social media, you know, I'm working in Pro Tools, I'm doing audio editing or I'm songwriting or this or that and the other thing. And I think I've just decided that my personal well-being is more important than my personal success. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Like, definitely. Yes. I could definitely be on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook all the time, just posting content nonstop, trying to, you know, consistently be in front of my audience. But at the same time, I, I'm at this place in life where I'm like, I don't think I need to be in front of people all the time. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to be in front of people all the time, and I don't think I have anything that people need. I think that the things that I give to the world, while they mean a lot to me, and I hope that they mean a lot to other people, that a, a lot of times if they're just done for the sake of an audience, they're garbage. Yeah, they're just right. add to the noise. They just add to the background, and I don't want to be a part of that. So I think I think a lot of it is for me has just been doing your this this sort of. Uh, self inventory of what things are really important to you, and even if you if it were to make you extremely successful or even marginally more successful than you are now, it's not worth it. Is it really worth giving up a part of yourself that makes you really you? Yeah, that where you lose the ability, like what you were saying, to sort of internalize in long term memory these experiences that you have, these relationships that you have, and how important they are to you. So, yeah, you've you've been an encouragement to me in that way in my own personal life. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Because for me, it it does feel like a never-ending battle and it feels like I'm constantly renegotiating the boundaries where and I think the most useful thing that I have done recently is a deleting all social media off my phone, but then actually coming up with going to a password generator, making a really, really impossible password, writing it down (laughs) in a notebook that stays in my desk. Yeah. And so even if I'm at work or at home and I just want to flip out my phone Mm -hmm. and look at it, I can't. You have a very real boundary. I have a, because I, it's impossible to memorize that password. And then if I do need to get online, or if I do need to get on social media, I have to go to my desk, sit down, it's pull very out purposeful. this notebook, type <laughs> in the password, do the two two level authentication, and just that five seconds or ten seconds of friction. And I got the by the way, this came from Cal Newport in his podcast. He was the one who suggested this, and so I've been doing. It. And it has. I feel like that so far has been one of the best things because in the movie it talks about how. 
imagine a, a game of chess yeah. and how even the best chess player that humanity has to offer lost a game of chess against an AI. An, an AI. AI. Yeah. Well, that is what we're up against with social media. It is. I, my simple human brain, it doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter how many boundaries I have. There, there is superpowers and, and billions of dollars being poured into these algorithms to basically put me in a daze and send me on this rabbit hole. And, yes. and quite frankly, human nature is powerless against that. And so I think one of the best choices I've made is just deciding that I can't win that fight. I mm. cannot practice yeah. willpower when I'm on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that and so just having a password, writing it down on paper locks me out of it because I know Mm. that so you're I saying will just lose. not even engaging not yeah and when i do engage like i have a rule when mm -hmm. i start scrolling that's when i shut sure. it down. sure for me one of the one of the things that jumped out at me in the the talking heads portion was i do not remember who said it uh in the movie but one of the tech gurus he said do you look at your phone before you use the bathroom in the morning or while you're using the bathroom in the morning because there is no alternative. True story. I have dropped my phone into my pee stream. <laughs> <laughs> I can openly admit that now. It's not my finest moment of existence. Not taking it back. But I have TT'd on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> We're all friends here. Um. But that, that was a poignant moment to me because it just reflects, it, it illustrates how much control these apps have over our waking lives and yeah. for me you know i my for as for many people my alarm is on my phone and my my daily battle when i wake up in the morning is i turn off my alarm and i resist the urge to immediately clear yeah. my notifications yeah. it's instant it's, it's instant you you see the notifications and you have to clear them yeah because it's clutter and i don't like clutter <laughs> um it's like the moment you wait the moment you're conscious is yes. trying to capitalize on your life it is and i try to set aside those mornings i try to have at least breakfast something where right. I'm not looking at my phone, maybe I'm playing with my cat, maybe I'm reading a physical newspaper, you know, like connecting to the world or getting my news. Something tactile, like something, something that you could tactile. actually touch. Yeah. yeah. So, so connecting in other ways, and I'm not the best at it. I, I still, like, I, I go in, especially if I have text messages, because I have friends on you know, east and west coast. So I get text messages in the middle of the night and then I check them in the morning. And yeah, it's, yeah, you know, before I've even had coffee. Yeah. So that's a struggle. Same. And the other one is checking them at night because that's when I set my alarms. Right. Those are the two times I feel like I'm most vulnerable. Yeah. And so I, I really, like, like you said, Stephen, have to set up boundaries. And one of the uh, one of the things that I took away from, I think it was Cal Newport. He talks about and Cal Newport is like a, a productivity guru, but he's one of the few productivity gurus who I can actually handle because it, it's much more like how to live a good life and how to how to set boundaries and discipline so that you can live a fulfilling life. Of and it's course. not just about, you know, advancing in your career. Yeah. How to be right. the best bro of all exactly. time. Exactly. Right. How to be the biggest Wh tech which is bro something in the universe. That, um, Jenny Odell talks about in how to do nothing, like the, the whole productivity culture oh, yeah. and, and how flawed it is. It's super toxic. But yeah. what, what he says is if you, and I think I got this from him, maybe I got it from someone else, but it used to be that the boundaries were clear. You would, go to work, and that was your work time. And then when you left work, you literally physically could not do work. Yeah. Because it was, it was in the office building. And, and so all of, there are all these boundaries between leisure and work yeah. that, that were just in place. Well, now in a myriad of ways, these boundaries are breaking down because of this technology. And what he says is that if you do not set boundaries, 
then the world is going to set those boundaries for you. Mm. And that is something none of us want. That is yeah. a path to yes. horrific suffering. And if Especially you, under capitalism. Exactly. Yeah. It, and it's it's uh, like this colonizing of your inner spaces. Yeah. Of, of those quiet moments, mm. reading, you know, pausing between paragraphs in a book or going for a walk or all of those yes. moments are capitalized. Yeah. And if you don't set up the walls, then the world is going to dictate how you live. Right. And yes. that is something we just do not want. And and so, you know, when I first started limiting my social media use, this was several years ago, it felt like my life transformed. Mm. It's like suddenly I had time for a full-time job to write, to do a podcast, time with time for my partner, time to read many different books, time to run to do yoga. It's like suddenly this because whole not, world right. opens. It's right. not just time, it's energy. Yes. And you realize that you're forfeiting all of this energy to this thing that even when you are off of it, you don't have the energy to maximize your time anymore. Right. Because you forfeited all of that to well, something it, else. It's emotional as well. Yeah. It's an emotional drain. Yep. And yeah. and that's those are valuable stores that we need they to are. survive. And I think it also, again, circling back to earlier in the conversation, I think it drains us of empathy. Oh, totally. Mm. And how do you connect with your world? Yeah. Without empathy. And and when and how do you connect when you're constantly being drained of when when you're constantly, you know, being forced to feel outrage or mm-hmm. or excessive emotion by the algorithms. There there's nothing yeah. restorative or relaxing about it. Yep. I think in the vein of relaxing, I'm just gonna give my last little bit yes, here. Go sure. for it. Uh, and I'm just going to try to rate this movie, but I'm going to rate it in chai teas. In what? In chai, chai teas. Chai teas. Okay. Because okay. I think that good. is relaxing and calming. Okay. And it's a great practice for anyone. Sure. <laughs> drinking tea or otherwise. Right. So I'm going to give this, for me, uh-huh. Okay. four chai teas. Here's why. Okay. Because I think it's an important movie to watch. Mm-hmm. I think that they were able to condense a fuck ton of information into a short amount of time and to appeal to a, a very broad audience and put this in terms that a lot of different people from all different walks of life can be able to understand. And I also, anytime that somebody puts their mind to it to try to elevate mankind around them and to try to shed light on a very important topic that is toxifying our culture, I absolutely applaud that. So while, while there are a- sure. there are things that absolutely pulled me out of it, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't want to see any of the AI <laughs> moments or the family stuff again, and I just want raw, unadulterated talking heads <laughs> ad nauseum. <laughs> um, I'm giving it four chai teas, Stephen. Yeah, I agree. Four four chai teas. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I'm okay. down with that. You're down with that. Okay. Yep. I I'm on the fence about whether to give it three and a half or four. So was I, and I just decided to be kind. Uh, you know what? Maybe <laughs> kindness is the way to go. So four chai teas it is. <laughs> All right. Well, the official sacred tension rating for the social dilemmas for chai teas. We will be seeing that on Rotten Tomatoes soon. All right. Well, that is it for this show. As always, the music is by The Jelly Rocks and Eleventy Seven. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das, and this show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is a production of Rock Candy Media. As always, hail Satan. We'll see you next week.